Let us then turn to John chapter 1, Gospel according to John, the first chapter. Their text in the words of verse 33. John chapter 1 and verse 33, And I knew him not, but he had sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Amen. As we continue to look at the theme of baptism, our title tonight is Baptism is Immersion Demanded by Scripture. And as you can tell already, this evening we start to get into uh, areas of some controversy in our study. <laughs> we are considering particularly whether biblical baptism, baptism the way the Bible wants us to do it, is to be done by sprinkling or pouring of water upon the person be baptized from above, or by dipping and immersing the person into the water beneath. These are the two modes uh, that are practiced commonly in the church of Christ upon the earth. Now it is important to understand at the outset that our own position as a church is that although sprinkling and pouring is to be preferred, it does not say that immersion is invalid. And we do not ask those who have been immersed and then come to our church seeking membership to be rebaptized. We'd rather say that the immersion, the uh, pouring and sprinkling is more in accordance with Scripture. We would not say that immersion is so flawed as to be uh, not baptism at all. And you know then from our practice the position that our church has taken and and how we perform baptisms as a denomination and as a congregation. Now, those who are uh, of what are called the Baptist view, which of course really means is those who are of an adult Baptist own, baptism only view, they are insistent that the word in the New Testament for baptism absolutely must be defined as a totally a total immersion in the water complete covering by the water it is not enough as it were to wade into the waters of baptism in the baptismal font up to your waist or up to your shoulders you must be completely covered over with the water that they insist is what the word requires and we should also be straight enough to say, if that is what the word means, that's what we should do. If the word requires and is always used in that way and there's no variation of meaning across it, then we should be baptizing by means of total immersion. So the argument, if you like, that you come across for a Baptist is not necessarily that uh, their whole thinking is completely wrong in the way they construct their theology around it, but it is a question of understanding what the word means. And on that basis, you can exactly see why they take the position that they do. So much so that uh, 
in many, if not most, Baptist churches, uh, we would not have access to the Lord's Supper. Because, in their view, our baptism is so substantially deficient as not to count as real baptism. And we would have the same view. Someone has to be baptized before they sit at the table. So if they cannot see us as being properly baptized, then how can they admit us to the table? So they're only being consistent in putting forward that position. But you can see why there's a very tightly defined position. Now... The Baptist's view requires then baptism in every instance in the New Testament must mean immersion. Must always and only ever mean that. And there is not a range of meaning in the word. And that gives us itself, gives us a question, and it also gives us our first point. And our first point itself is the form of our question. What is the link between your view of who and your view of how? What is the link between who should be baptized and how should they be baptized? Because there is a link. There are things that go together. You've probably noticed. But with almost no exceptions in the broader Christian church, those who want adults only to be baptized insist upon immersion. Those who accept infant baptism as well, sprinkle or pour. Now why is why are these things almost set in stone? Why are these links made? What is the link between your view of who should be baptized and your view of how should they be baptized? Why are there no uh, Christians who believe in adult-only baptism who choose to sprinkle or pour? Why are there uh, no uh, infant, uh, those who accept infant baptism who insist, nevertheless, they must all be immersed? Why are these things connected? Well, you can certainly imagine at least one very practical reason. An infant would get a terrible fright to be held under the water in baptism without any understanding of what's going on. But that's just a pragmatic thing. There is a reason for these links. There's a reason why those who support an adult-only baptism choose to prefer immersion, and those who support adults and infants choose to prefer um, pouring and sprinkling. And it refers back to what we've been saying before. When we began the study, we looked at... Um, a sacrament of the one church across the Testaments. We then went on to consider baptism uh, as the successor to circumcision. And so the link refers to your view of baptism and circumcision as being one the successor of the other. And your view also even fundamentally of the relative continuity or distinction between Old and New Testament. And those who have a, a view of uh, baptism as being the successor of circumcision and has been a continuity essentially between Old and New Testaments as both dispensations of the covenant of grace, they will tend towards a sprinkling or 
um, appalling view of baptism. And there's a reason for that. But where people are convinced of a separation between them, they tend to go for an immersion. Now, we have been putting forward the view that baptism is essentially a successor to circumcision and that there is one church between Old and New Testaments. And so we can look to the Old Testament because that's our understanding of we can look to the Old Testament to help us understand things in the New Testament and vice versa. And we do so for baptism and how to, how to understand how we're meant to perform this uh, requirement, this requirement to baptize, this water washing requirement. How are we to do it? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a lot of sprinkling and pouring in the ceremonies that were used to purify things for God and set them apart to God. It may have been the hyssop that was dipped in the blood and then it was sprinkled upon the posts of the doors and over the lintel at the Passover. It may have been Moses sprinkling the people with the blood of the covenant as they stand to engage uh, as in God's covenant, as God's people. They were sprinkled upon. They were being separated out and set apart for God. Or there would have been a pouring element as well. The, the priests and the kings of Israel, they were anointed into office and the oil was poured upon them. I was then being set apart for the work of God. So if you are wondering about the form of baptismal washing in the New Testament, what would that look like? And if you also hold to the essential continuity of the old and new, then it's not so surprising that those who are already expecting to apply this New Testament covenant sign to their children as it was in the Old Testament, they find other help in the Old Testament in figuring out how to go about it. But if, on the other hand, you see an essential break between the two, so much so that you're prepared even, so fundamentally different, to redefine the boundaries of God's people so radically as to remove entrance from it altogether in the breadth of the New Testament then it's a lot less surprising that you won't find the sprinklings to set things apart or the pourings to set people apart in the Old Testament as of any guide at all when it comes to asking the question, well, how should I go about baptizing people with water? If you see a break, you won't look at these things. But if you don't, then you might. And so I think that is something of the reason why the Baptist mindset that has not seen the breadth of the church, has been looking purely at their understanding of things from the New Testament perspective, not looking for help from the old to understand it, whereas those who have done so have taken in a broader view of sprinkling and pouring. So, that being said, let us move on secondly and ask another question. What is the case, what is the argument for this word baptism or baptismos Meaning to immerse, an immersion. What is the case? Now, the Greek word that we are considering here is baptismos. When it's said to be a baptism, when it's a noun, it is baptismos. 
and when it's a verb it's baptizo but it's from the same root and you can hear it where we get our words baptize and baptism from does that word mean completely immerse now i'm going to attempt to uh, put the case for baptism as a word meaning to immerse uh, you understand that I won't make the case as well as a convinced Baptist will. I wouldn't pretend even to do it with uh, entire uh, objectivity. But I will try to do it as fairly as I can. And the evidence that is gathered then to support the idea that baptismos or baptizo means immersion goes something like this. John the Baptist. John chapter 3 and verse 23. John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. So there is one of the arguments. If it is just a little sprinkling, there's no need for much water. The fact that it specifically says that John baptizes in this place not just that there was, but because there was much water there is an indication that it was an immersion. That's the argument. Or in the next book of Scripture, in the book of Acts, and chapter 8, in the famous incident of the Ethiopian eunuch, He asked, what hinders me from being baptized? He, he is water, verse 36. And he then Philip commands the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water. And Philip and the eunuch, both Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. So there's a going down into the water you see in baptism. And that would again... Uh, it seemed to tie in more with a baptistic view of it and an immersion view of it than with us pouring and sprinkling. And then if we go forward to Peter's epistle, in First Peter And I've got the passage wrong. But one of the references in Peter certainly gives us um, Peter referring to uh, the flood and Noah. And in that passage, it speaks about it as a baptism. Now you'd say, well, that was hardly a sprinkling that was involved. The flood of water. How uh, they were saved in the waters of the flood. Or in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians and chapter 10 and verse 2. When he's talking about Moses, they were under the cloud, they all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And of course, that's talking about them passing through the Red Sea and uh, the uh, Shekinah, the, the a pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led them through the wilderness. They were baptized into the sea 
and they went through the sea and it was as well over their heads on either side and then also in the epistle to the hebrews hebrews chapter 9 and it's talking about the the um levitical uh, ceremonies in the tabernacle and these things were a figure for the time being present 9 verse 9 but in verse 10 they stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation and that word washings and diverse washings is the same word as we have for baptism so there's there's a baptizing of the uh, implements in the tabernacle and then in Leviticus where it refers to what happens to these things in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 32 and upon whatsoever any of them when they are dead doth fall it shall be unclean this is the vessels or the implements whether it be any vessel of wood or raiment or skin or sack, whatsoever vessel it be, but in any work is done, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the even and so it shall be cleansed. So there is there another reference to being put into water. You go on in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, it speaks about the garments of the Lord Jesus Christ being dyed in blood in chapter 19 of Revelation. And at verse 13, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. That is a dipping down into it, not a pouring out upon it, surely. And his name is called the Word of God. So the garments of Christ baptized in blood. There's all these different references. But the, the most striking um, analogy and picture that is used comes from, well, it's Paul's writings, both in Romans and Colossians. And in Romans 6 and in Colossians 2, Paul speaks of being buried with Christ in baptism. And you'll be familiar with that image. So in that case, if, we've, uh, if that's what it is, be buried with Christ in baptism, then we go down with Christ in his burial under the ground, and we rise up with him, as we're out of the waters of baptism to show that we are now alive in Christ Jesus as Christ himself rose from the dead. And baptism is meant to represent this. That's the meaning of baptism and therefore it should be an immersion. So these are some of the arguments that are used. That the word means immersion. And I found one other argument and I can give you a Baptist argument in his own words here. But we quote and this is a quote from a man called James Montgomery Boyce, who's a fairly well-known uh, Baptist commentator. He's talking about the meaning of this word baptizo in uh, Greek, in ancient Greek, to prove that, that it means a complete immersion. And he says, the clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C., it is a recipe for making pickles and is helpful because it uses both words. Now, Candor says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, which is a word, bapto, into boiling water and then 
baptized, baptizo, which is the fuller word we're considering, in the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution, but the first is temporary, a dipping, bapto. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable produces a permanent change. It becomes pickled, it's baptizo. When using in the New Testament, the word more often refers to a union and identification with Christ than to a water baptism. Christists say that mere intellectual assent is not enough. There must be a union with him, a real change in nature, like the vegetable to the pickle. And that's James Montgomery Boyce. Now, I confess, when you start using ancient recipes as your argument, I think you're on weak ground. But that's the argument that is put in their own words. Thirdly, then, another question. What is the biblical range of meanings for the word baptism? Because the truth is that these words do have a range of meaning in the New Testament, and they can mean to dip, and they can mean to immerse, but they can also mean to sprinkle or to pour. Imagine we were using the word and insisted on every word had to be exactly narrowly defined, and we were using the word wash. Say, I wash my hands. Well, you might mean by that in our language, you might mean that you went and you turned on the taps and you ran your hands under the taps and the water was pouring out upon your hands and you washed them. Or you might mean that you turned on the taps, put the plug in the basin and filled it with water, turned off the taps and then plunged your hands into the basin. And then you'd have immersed them, but you'd still be washing. The one word can have a breadth of meaning. Let's take the arguments then used to insist that it is a narrow meaning for baptize and see if they stand up. The argument John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized and he was beside much water in John 3. That's why he was baptizing the Well, that does not prove it was immersion. You might say it makes it more likely. But the fact that it was beside, because there was much water, does not prove it. There were tens of thousands of people. It says at one point, all of Judea and Jerusalem went out after John. And there was a requirement for there to be much water. A bowlful would not have been enough. But then if you take the argument, much water is required for baptizing many people because you have to immerse them, then how were thousands baptized and added to the church on the day of Pentecost, not out in Anon, near Salem, where there was much water, but in Jerusalem. If there was enough water to baptize thousands in Jerusalem, why did John have to go all the way out there? If it was immersion that was required. Or you could take the eunuch as the other example. He went into the water and then came up out of it. There you prove it is immersion. But if the Bible is saying you go in and coming out is proving that it's immersion, then Philip was rebaptized because he went down with him and then came out with him as well. It doesn't make sense. Again, Revelation chapter 19, where it talks about the, the garments of Christ being dipped in blood, dyed in blood. Revelation there is referring clearly to Isaiah. Well-known words in Isaiah 63. <coughs> Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah, 
This that is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my garments. The garments dipped in blood in Revelation 19 are not immersed, but splattered. That is the reference in the Old Testament, which shows it clearly. What about Peter in this passage there where he talks about how the waters of the flood, this immersion, saved the people in the ark? No. It clearly, if anywhere it can't mean immersion, it doesn't mean it there. If the flood, if the ark is immersed, it sinks, they drown. It can't mean immersion in that point. If you insist upon it, the whole imagery and icon becomes ridiculous. Back in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, we mentioned that word with washing and I would prove from the Leviticus passage that yes, in that case, uh, it does include uh, immersing, uh, putting the, the defiled implement into the water. That's what the Leviticus passage showed us. So Hebrews 9 and verse 10, the diverse washings. But if we just read on a little bit, it goes on to speak about other washings. That's one of them there in Leviticus. But there's another one just in Hebrews 9, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify to the purifying of the flesh. The sprinkling of the unclean is in the same context as this baptizing and the different kinds of washings that there are in the Old Testament. Now then, these are some of the isolated cases, but the, the most easily held argument in, our, in the mind of the Baptist is we are buried with him in baptism, we rise with him in newness of life. And we can understand why that's a, an argument that's very plain for us all to grasp. And in Romans chapter 6 and Colossians 2, where the Apostle speaks in these things, that is one of the pictures that Paul uses to explain what baptism means. He's trying to uh, cover what is baptism about. And he explains it in terms of our being buried with Christ. It's our union to Christ that it's all about. We stress that ourselves. We looked at the meaning of baptism. Union with Christ by the washing away of our sins. But Paul in Romans and in Colossians he is dealing with the meaning. He is not talking about the mode. <coughs> he is not talking about the way in which you do it. He's saying, what does it mean? That which we do when we baptize, what does it mean? And Paul uses three pictures to explain the meaning of baptism. He uses the picture of being buried with him, yes. But he also used the picture of being crucified with him. And he also used the picture of being planted together with him. Because he's not talking about 
He's not trying to make an analogy of how baptism is like this in the visual appearance of it. He's talking about the meaning. And somehow then baptism, water baptism, would have to, if it has to replicate being buried with him, it also has to replicate being crucified with him and being planted with him. And it clearly doesn't. It's not talking there about, it's not trying to illustrate it. It's trying to explain the meaning of what baptism is about. And then just as an extra, the idea of, of burial represented in baptism, if that wasn't enough, it depends entirely upon our Western view of burial, where there is a hole dug in the ground six feet deep. Whereas in Israel, just as often, not exclusively, but a cave may be used. And indeed it was a cave, of course. It was a tomb in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was placed as a web sideways into the ground. And so the whole connection and baptism of going down and then up doesn't work. So, if you will pardon a slight pun, the argument doesn't hold water. Fourthly, and finally, what is the action involved in baptism? I think this is important and perhaps one that is underappreciated. When the Bible speaks of baptism, the person performing the ceremony is baptizing someone. They are active. Paul said he had baptized some, he'd done it. The Lord Jesus um, was baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus' disciples baptized. The person receiving the baptism is passive. They are always described as being baptized. You would never have someone say, even today, I am baptizing myself today. They are passive. It is something that is happening to them. And what is happening to them? Well, the water is what's happening to them. The water, if you like, is the, the active ingredient. You know the way you see someone on, on a detergent product, active ingredient that gives you some fancy name that none of us know much what it means. This is the active ingredient here. Well, the active ingredient in baptism is water. Water is the thing that is... Uh, symbolically doing the washing. Only the person is passive. The water is not passive. John baptized actively with water. You probably see where this is going. The water is not passive. Now if you think about the two different distinct modes of baptism. There's immersion and there's pouring sprinkling. In immersion, the water is passive. The person being baptized is more active. They move, they go down and they come up, but the water just sits there. It remains where it is. If you contrast that with our style of baptism where the person is still. 
they are passive. And the water is actively applied. It is poured or sprinkled upon them. I see it's all just, that's just grammar, passive and active. I remember having to learn that in high school and I didn't like it then. But it's more than that. Because the water of baptism is the part of the whole uh, sacrament that represents the third person of the Godhead. And his role in uniting that soul to Christ. He is not passive. He is active. The water of baptism is representative of the Holy Ghost. Look at our text back in John 1, 33, in case you thought we'd forgotten it. <coughs> Speaking of Christ, he says, The same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. That's how Jesus baptizes. When Jesus is baptized, John is doing it outwardly with water. But when Jesus chooses to baptize a soul and thus unite that soul to himself, he baptizes them with the Holy Ghost. Now, does that sinner lost and a children of wrath, even as others, does that sinner go down into the Holy Ghost? Or does the Holy Ghost come down upon them? When Christ baptizes a soul, which is it? Is it immersion or is it pouring? What was Pentecost when the Spirit was given to the church in great measure? It was the baptism of the church of Christ with the gift of the Spirit from the hand of our Lord in glory. You could almost say, certainly by, by quantity if you like, that the church was immersed with the Holy Spirit, but not immersed into it. By quantity, maybe an immersion, but by action, it was a pouring out from above. That's the way our Lord baptizes. And the baptism he has instituted in his church ought to reflect that. And it ought not to portray the third person of the Spirit as being passive. In the uniting of a soul to Christ. The action of the water in baptism is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit, and immersion is not a fit symbol for his work. Now I know that we've been going back and forth with different texts, back and forth different passages. This evening, a lot of material, a lot of different avenues. And I promise you, I cannot remember all the texts without my notes in front of you of me. And I don't expect that you can either. Or you can probably remember them better than I can. But we are really concerned tonight to show that baptism is properly administered. Biblically administered by pouring or sprinkling. We want to show that contrary to the Baptist's insistent claim, <clears throat> baptism does not always mean immersion. In fact, it often does not. And in relation to Christian baptism, it clearly is an inferior mode of doing it than by, immerse, by sprinkling or pouring. But the reason we chose John 1.33 
is I believe this text is sufficient to help us remember is baptism immersion or not? How does Jesus baptize a soul when he washes away their sins? Because that's really what it comes down to. You see, baptism is a sacrament. It's a sign and seal of the covenant. Water baptism has its place, but it is depicting a spiritual truth, something of substance. The substance is the spiritual side. The reality, the substance that lies behind water baptism. How does Jesus wash away the sins of a poor lost soul? And the Bible is insistent on how he does it. By pouring out his spirit upon them from heaven. And this passage here in Matthew, in, in John chapter 1, he baptizes with the Holy Ghost. This is one of the few uh, quotes from the mouth of our Saviour, uh, that we've guarded our Saviour, that is repeated in one form or another in all of the Gospels. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, John answered and said unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but there is one mightier than I cometh, the latch of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1 and verse 8. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Or right back in Matthew. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. In every gospel, Jesus is said to baptize sinners with his spirit. You never have to go further. You don't even remember which gospel it's in. You'll never go further in the third chapter of any of them to find that passage, that phrase. Jesus baptizes with his spirit and it is not an immersion into the spirit, a pouring out of the spirit upon us. And then to drive the point home finally, what of the baptism of Christ himself? Jesus was baptized by John with water. What happened next? The Spirit of God came down upon him from above. There was the outward sign and there was the spiritual substance and reality behind it. It was not an immersion, but it was a giving and pouring <coughs> without measure of the Spirit upon Christ, who now himself baptizes with the Spirit. May God bless his word. Let us pray.